Make sure you're in the right place. Well, thank you all for coming. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk with you. And uh, while we're here, um, talk about space. I had the opportunity to be able to look back at the Earth for nearly three months. And in that period of time, you really gain a full appreciation for the beauty of our home planet. How many of you like to fly in space? Good, okay. Well, I also enthusiastically responded to the same question many years ago. Then they also asked, how would you like to sit on top of millions of pounds of explosives? Oh, I did it again. <laughs> how would you like to sit on top of millions of pounds of explosives controlled by millions of parts and each one coming from the lowest cost government supplier? <laughs> Well, I'd like to start off by looking back a little bit. Uh, look at our golden era and what we have achieved. It was an exciting period, and we really did achieve a lot. Uh, it lasted for about 50 years, but uh, unfortunately, it's recently come to an abrupt end with the cancellation of the space shuttle and the Constellation program. Uh, for us to now put an American into space, we have to pay the Russians uh, $80 million for that privilege. However, because of that golden era and what we achieved, we now have continuous presence in Earth orbit, aboard the International Space Station. We've explored the moon by foot and by car. <laughs> and we've sent robots, which many of you here certainly would know about, sent our robots out to explore the other planets and moons of our solar system. And we also have images of galaxies and other, other objects out uh, throughout our universe, some as far away as the edge of our universe. Light takes about 14 billion years to reach us from that edge. So it is really a large, uh, uh, a large area of space to start understanding. Well, there are a lot of people on Earth, mere humans, uh, trying to understand how to make that happen. And leadership uh, of these types of people made it all happen. But you look at this and you say, what the heck could these guys have to do with spaceflight? I mean, the guy in the center may be a very competent accountant. Yeah. <laughs> Tall guy to the right, a little uncomfortable in a shirt and tie. <laughs> in truth, both these gentlemen were essential to spaceflight. Both personified two vital and essential traits of leadership, vision and courage. The courage to turn their own visions into reality. The gentleman in the center is Dr. Robert Goddard, now considered the father of American rocketry, although 90 years ago he was just being continuously ridiculed for his obsessive playing with rockets. But he had the courage to persist and American space flight is much further ahead today because he did. The other gentleman to the right, Charles Lindbergh, a pioneering aviation, the base on which space flight was built. His aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, which he was the first human to fly across the Atlantic, uh, now hangs in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., just as it did many, well, actually many, many, many years ago when I stared up in awe as a kid. I could just not picture putting my warm, tender, pink little body into that small, frail aircraft and heading out into the darkness alone across the Atlantic. In a flash, I was filled with admiration for his courage to demonstrate his vision. Well, in addition to those who directly participate in flight programs, others with vision and courage are also required. Those who control the money. Such a man as John F. Kennedy, shown here before a joint session of Congress, when he delivered this bold challenge to our nation. 
everybody in the flight program was really glad I'd add, he added that last line. <laughs> JFK's vision extended beyond our Cold War competition with the Soviets to something more altruistic, something beyond our internal needs and comforts or politics, to something which is shared globally, this human drive to explore. Well, maybe some of you might be more interested in this next subject. What would it be like for you to launch into space? Well, launch day starts out normal enough. Have breakfast with two of your friends. Um, it was Bill Pogue on the left, Jerry Carr on the right. You notice the lady behind us is wearing a mask. That's because we were NASA's very expensive laboratory animals. <laughs> they wanted to make sure if we got sick in space, it was not because of bacteria or viruses we brought up with us from Earth. Well, after breakfast, put on your business suit, lounge around, maybe uh, read the annoying paper, talk to your friends. Boss drops by to give you his blessing. For me, it was Deke Slayton. You get in a van, put on your hat and gloves, and get in your van, head off to work, which is about five miles away. Now, your office is located at the top of a 37-story building. Taking elevator to the top floor, walk along a very narrow corridor. Right well, we'll just, the green guy, I'm going to have to really get trained here. I got it, yeah. Elevator, walk along this very narrow corridor and wait outside your office, which is a very small room. As you lean against that structure, you can feel it popping and creaking and groaning under the weight and frigid temperatures of a million pounds of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen freshly loading into that building below. You see lights are blinking and computers are flashing and gases are venting, and you realize that today, this cold, lifeless building has finally come alive. Try to keep that wide grin off your face as you slide into your small office and lay on a couch, stare at a very familiar scene. Then you just relax there. Got a couple hours, relax, watching the world go by. Eventually, one of your friends outside yawns and casually starts counting backwards from 10. <laughs> then you hear this tremendous sucking sound and propellants get ripped into combustion chambers. It was a noise my crewmate Bill Pogue said. It sounded like they just simultaneously flushed every toilet in the Houston Astrodome. <laughs> then far below and lasting less than a second, you feel eight engines ignite in a ripple fire and you creep off the pad. Now the front of your mind is all focused on potential abort procedures and the gauges and, and uh, computer displays in front of you, even as this little whisper seeps up from the back of your mind. Hey, you. The basement of your building just exploded. <laughs> right on the first stage is noisy and rough, like high-speed train with square wheels. At around one minute into the flight, you go through the speed of sound and also hit the maximum of the aerodynamic forces and turbulence that jolt the booster as you ram through this mounting wall of air resistance ahead of you. The vibration becomes severe. You feel something like a mouse strapped to a jackhammer. Then it smooths out a little until staging at two minutes, which feels somewhat like a head-on crash quickly followed by a second impact from the rear. Now, in sharp contrast, the ride on the second stage is just like one long, smooth elevator where you accelerate ever faster as this massive propellants burn away. Eventually, you weigh about five times your normal weight, which is not bad because 
you're laying on your back and your heart's at the same elevation as your head so you don't gray out or pass out, but you notice it's hard to lift the hand and your cheeks and ears have slid to the back of your head. <laughs> then at about eight and a half minutes, the engine's cut off sharply and immediately everything floats. Spacecraft, where they tried so hard to keep clean at the Cape, becomes filled with dirt and debris as it floats up from its hiding places on the floor. You see a nut, a couple of horses, and a screw float by and briefly wonder where that came from. <laughs> Glance out, curved horizon, coast of Florida. This is the best simulation yet. Well, you put your head back into the spacecraft and get ready for the rendezvous at the space station. And in just a matter of what seemed like minutes, they glance out again, and there's Italy sliding underneath. Now you know what it's like to travel five miles every second. As soon as I got back, a highway patrolman gave me a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Said I was doing 17,562 miles per hour in a 40. <laughs> well, the man behind the Saturn rocket program, which really made the flights to the moon possible, as well as our uh, space station Skylab, was Dr. Werner von Braun. He built large boosters first in Germany, and then over here in the United States. No doubt his role in World War II made him a very controversial figure when he came over to this country because of his work with the, with the Nazis. However, as I worked with him in the 60s and 70s at Marshall Space Flight Center, I found him to be not only a great engineer and a visionary, but also a great uh, leader because he demonstrated this fierce commitment to the United States program and to his team. In truth, he was very easy to like and respect. Early in his career, he realized he was not just in the rocket business, he was in the exploration business. He saw rockets not as an end in themselves, but rather as a way to leave Earth and live and explore the world around us. So it was quite natural after the cancellation of the last three Apollo missions, he and a few others in NASA came up with a way to use some of that leftover hardware to build a space station, which eventually became Skylab. Because he had the full trust and respect of his team, he was able to quickly shift the focus of these hard-headed, largely German rocket scientists from building rockets to building a space station. Okay, if you're like anybody else who's ever gone into space, one of the first things you want to do as soon as you get up there, natural inclination is to turn around and look back and try to see where you just came. It's not hard. Look out the window and there is Earth. You can't miss it. <laughs> Beautiful scenes like this keep coming over the horizon and sliding beneath you. Now, if you want to get an even better view, how many of you would like to go outside for a spacewalk? Good. Well, we're going to get you trained in a little different way than normal. We're going to put you in a water tank, put you in your suit, put your hat and gloves on, pump you up with a little air, toss you into the water, put some weights on you so that you don't float, sink, or rotate, and then we'll drag you over next to the mock-ups of the equipment you're going to work with in space. We've concluded after doing this many times, if you can do it in water, you can do it in space. Three times I had the opportunity to go out into the great outdoors. When you're out there, it's a silent world except for the whispers of your own breath. It feels like the world below doesn't even know you're there. But what is it like? What's it feel like? Well, let's come on back down here for a second and go up to the top of a tall building. Sears Tower, Empire State Building, that'll do. And you go up to the top floor, look out a window, and it's 
very pleasant and relaxing. Now let's open the window, take you out to the end of a long springboard where you have a steel-fisted Hulk Hogan grab you by your ankles and hold you, head down. Now even though you're at the same height as you were inside, and intellectually you know you're never going to fall, you have to admit it feels a bit different. On a spacewalk, you get that same feeling, just more of it. Head down, you glide over Earth at a very serene five miles a second. And the laws of Sir Isaac Newton give you full intellectual confidence that you're up there to stay. But when you move away from the station, look straight down at Earth, 300 miles below, you don't feel or see anything else around you. That same whisper seeps up from the back of your mind. Hey, you again. Suppose that Newton guy was just a little bit wrong. <laughs> Wipe the smile off your face and get back to work. Great leaders can arise from anywhere. Sometimes they're very difficult to spot because their internal fires don't always shine through. The shovel-looking guy on the right with a cigarette in one hand and holding up the aircraft with the other was just one of hundreds of B-25 pilots in World War II. They're all hard chargers. They had to be to accomplish what they did. But this guy also had exceptional vision and mission focus. After the war, he back, went back to school, got his college degree, then went through uh, test pilot school. In 1959, NASA was looking for just this kind of guy. Thus, Deke Slayton became one of the original seven. He's in the front row, second from the left. Uh, Wally Shiraz on the end, and then Deke, John Glenn, uh, uh, Scott Carpenter, Al Shepard, Gus Grissom, and Gordon Cooper. Now, we all owe a great deal of uh, gratitude for these people because they really led the way for the rest of us. And also, these gentlemen are the ones who started the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, uh, which is the reason we're here tonight. Now, unfortunately, there's only one of these folks still alive today, and that's John Glenn. Also unfortunate, uh, before Deke could fly, the doctors thought they detected a heart problem, and he was grounded. Bitterly disappointed, he still wanted to try to contribute wherever he could. So he traded in a spacesuit for a business suit. NASA really took a chance on this guy because he had little management experience. When they made him head of the flight operations where he controlled all of the uh, astronauts, uh, flight controllers, the air, uh, aircraft pilots, uh, all of their operations, all of their training, facilities, equipment, and personnel. It was a huge job. At the height of the lunar program, he held the range of 40 headstrong astronauts. Each one of us was always charging off in our own direction, trying to do our own thing. Said it was like trying to keep socks on an octopus. <laughs> but he tightly reined in every one of us, not just because he was tough, which he certainly was, but more so because he was very mission-focused. And that is, if you were there, like him, to advance the mission, he gave you his full support. But if you were there more to advance yourself, he'd pull out a flamethrower and turn you to a crisp and nothing flat. Deke was the right guy for the job. Well, doctors continued to look at his heart. One day called him in and said, um, Deke, um, try to think back. Uh, recall, remember if you could, how we've uh, grounded you for the past 14 years? Never mind, you're really okay. So Deke finally got a chance to fly on Apollo Soyuz, our first joint mission with the Soviets in 1975. For many years of experience, I've come, come to regard Deke Slayton as one of the greatest leaders I've ever personally known. As he demanded this overwhelming focus on the mission, he was tough, but fair, harsh, but kind. He 
kind of guy you liked, trusted, respected, and feared all at the same time. <laughs> Working for Deke was an exciting education and a privilege. Well, okay, we got you up there. You're in your new home. You had a chance to go outside and walk around a bit. Now, what's it like to actually live there? This is Skylab, America's first space station, your home office and laboratory for many months. Now, when you look at it, it's not quite as pretty as other spacecraft you might have seen. Uh, we have a beautiful solar panel over here on the right, for example. Nothing over here at the left. The one that was supposed to be there is ripped off at about 60 seconds into the launch. Also, you see this very makeshift sunshade, which is uh, covering what used to be the area protected by a micrometeoric shield. That shield was also ripped off, and all that hardware is now laying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. That shield also provided thermal protection. And that meant when the first crew would uh, arrive there, they were greeted with a temperature inside of about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 degrees centigrade. But we cheered them up. Don't worry, guys. It's just like Arizona. It's a dry heat. <laughs> well, they did some great repair work that uh, brought the whole space station back up to fully functional and allowed the rest of us to fly. Well, when you are launched into space, you are literally thrust into a whole new environment. After a day, you're going to feel sick. And when you look in the mirror, this pumpkin looks back, this round red head with bright red eyeballs. Because no longer checked by gravity, your arteries and your whole cardiovascular system continue to ram the blood up towards your head. It feels like if you were down here on the ground and put your feet a little higher to your head, and you try that for many days, and you'll get that feeling of head fullness. But after around three or four days, you lose around three or four pounds of water, and we feel good again. From there on, everything becomes so easy and so effortless. <laughs> I could hold Jerry Carr up with just one finger. But even for this flying Superman here, one of the real problems with the stresses of spaceflight is there are none. Without gravity to work against, your muscles weaken if you don't exercise enough, and your bones slowly lose calcium and also weaken, pretty much like a bedridden patient down here. After a few weeks, you realize that space is not foreign and it's not hostile. It becomes familiar and just plain comfortable. Come to think of your space station as just an average three-bedroom home, just 300 miles high. In fact, it feels so solid and so secure, you don't even feel like you're flying at all. That is until the very end of the mission when you climb into your small agile reentry vehicle and start your, start your way home. It's just like leaving your nice stable home down here and uh, hopping into a sports car and accelerating back onto the road again. It was a comfortable home for sure, and we've been content to live up there for many years if we had friends and family along. Could have used a good pizza delivery. <laughs> well, everybody uh, on the ground tries to, hard to contribute to mission success, but no one is more important than the director of the flight control team. Each of these guys has to be immersed in all the technical details, uh, has to uh, lead a team of hundreds of flight controllers and technicians, and sometimes execute strategy and tactics in a matter of seconds. No one was better at it than Gene Kranz. If you worked in this flight control team, you better be an A-plus performer each and every day, or you soon find yourself outside standing next to the tourists looking back in. Fortunately, Gene was the lead flight director on Apollo 13. That's the flight to the moon where we nearly lost um, three crewmen, including Tom Hanks. <laughs> By being tough and demanding, he made sure that everybody on that mission understood that failure is not an option, 
was not just a fancy slogan, but absolutely had to be reality. Well, after many months in space, how do you think you feel when you come back home? Here's our ride. This is the same spacecraft you might have seen in the Apollo 13 movie, although fortunately for us, Exide was not blown out by an exploding oxygen tank. Um, we're going to give you uh, a, good, a good seat here. We'll put you right up behind this large window here where you can get a view of the whole show on the way down. Matter of fact, this particular spacecraft, this command, command module here, gumdrop-shaped thing, now also hangs in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. The folks there were really happy when we returned because we came back, brought back in one piece their display. <laughs> well, to start the whole thing off, we're going to undock here, fire the big engine on the back, slow up just slightly, separate the command module from the service module, and glide down towards reentry. Now, at first, you don't even notice the reentry, but eventually you start to see a very soft violet glow out the window. And then it gets a little stronger. It's more like being inside of a violet neon tube. Then eventually that, pro that progresses to a white hot flame. Geez, in turbulence build, it's more like being inside of a vibrating blast furnace riding on a centrifuge. But eventually you get low and slow enough. You can pop out three good parachutes. And you know you're pretty much home. At this point, you also know you're back to your normal weight. However, after having no weight for many months, you feel about three times heavier. Come down, right on target, about two miles from the aircraft carrier, com C, com winds, but we still ended up in what NASA calls stable two. That means you're hanging upside down in the straps, bobbing up and down in the ocean in this closed damp cabin with the heat of reentry soaking back in. The most uncomfortable part of the whole flight. Inflate three airbags, pop upright, put a collar underneath you so we don't, spacecraft doesn't sink, get hauled aboard the aircraft carrier, now comes the hard part. As you struggle to stand up, you feel depressed. Because no matter how hard you push off, it can no longer float. And no matter where you go from here on, you're going to have to haul along tremendous amounts of meat and bone. <laughs> Rolling over at night turns into a real engineering challenge. But the exercises that we did during those easy and lazy days of gravity paid off because we could walk as soon as we landed and suffered no lasting effects, at least at that time. Um, let's see, there's another uh, disappointment you're going to have to deal with, and that is when you're up there and you take the weight off your body, in particular all your joints, in particular backbone and the discs in your back, overall you become around two inches taller. Uh, hey, this is great, send me up again, let me get another two inches. <laughs> and short, unfortunately, the new height is short-lived once gravity gets you back into its clutches again. Another friend, he had a different problem when he came back from a lunar flight. Uh, first night on the aircraft carrier, he woke up in the middle of the night and had to go to the bathroom. So he just gently pushed off the wall to float to the door. He was on the top bunk. <laughs> well, after all that's been done in space, after all that we've gone to the moon, we've gone Earth orbit, we've really done a lot, could there be anything at all, anything left to do? Maybe we're right, maybe we just end, end the whole thing right here because there's nothing left to do. Well, let's think about it. Some point in the future, um, we will return to the moon. Uh, not only to better prepare us for our next, uh, not only for further exploration, but also to better prepare us for our next step, 
and try to do essentially what we did just over 42 years ago. This particular picture is from Apollo 17, our last mission to the moon. Uh, the astronaut there is Jack Schmidt. He and I got in the space program together. Jack's a very dedicated and competent geologist, and he always tried to make sure he got everything out of a mission he could. And if I know Jack at this point, he was wishing he could find a way to bring home his prized rock sample. <laughs> well, fortunately, we have recently uncovered a video which I think helps explain why we had to cancel the last three lunar flights. Using our experience from the, from the moon and from the space station, it's on to Mars. And once we do land there, its importance could go well beyond exploration. Mars was once a much hotter and a wetter place. It had a dense atmosphere and lakes and rivers. So the question is, why is it so barren now? Once we better understand the answer to that question, we'll also better understand the future of our own planet. Now, from the knowledge that there was a great deal of water on, the, on Mars, and there certainly is still some there in protected locations, and recently discovered some very close to the surface, scientists are becoming more excited than ever that someday we might just find the slightest evidence of life. <laughs> now, of course, just like down here on Earth, as the, as the uh, uh, settlers moving behind explorers, they'll be restricted to bringing along just the barest essentials to maintain our American way of life. I skipped one, didn't I? There you go. <laughs> well, beyond that, beyond our solar system, that's interesting to think about. We got some great telescope systems uh, now um, available to us. We have the Spitzer telescope, the Earth orbit, the, uh, the, the Kepler, uh, and the Hubble. Soon to be joined by the James Webb telescope. And also, maybe someday we'll have a telescope on the far side of the moon. We have a nice stable platform. We're free of Earth's radiations. Or uh, there's a new generation of uh, telescopes being built right down here on the ground, which many of you know uh, very, well, very well about. Uh, the leader of that is a giant Magellan telescope, which is going to be erected uh, over in Chile in the Atacama Desert in the mountains. Uh, that is a huge telescope. It has seven different segments, uh, seven disks of over 27 feet in diameter, and uh, it also has what's called adaptive optics, meaning that the optics can jiggle so uh, in just the right way so you can uh, eliminate a lot of problems with atmospheric seeing, and you can get extremely uh, sharp images, essentially a detwinkle stars. Now, um, turns out that, uh, and you may know about it, because just a half mile or so south of here, those seven segments are being built. They, I think they're on number four right now, uh, where they pour them and, and spin them to get the right look, the right, generally the right uh, shape, and then they ground and polish it. The whole process takes almost four years. Uh, but once they get up there, it's going to be a, a, a revolutionized uh, ground-based observatory observations. And uh, that'll happen probably around first light in 21, and uh, then 24 is when it's going to be fully operational. And I, just can't wait to see what we discover from that. 
Well, from one or more of these locations, someday we're going to be able to image the details of, around, of other planets uh, out there which are around stars. So far, we've detected almost uh, 5,000 such planets through the Kepler telescope. And uh, the question is, uh, will we be able to see a blue planet, a rocky blue planet with an oxygen atmosphere? If we do, we'll have a crash program for a near-light speed flight and a mission will fire our imagination far more than any episode of Star Trek. But, but we also understand distances out there are immense. On our Skylab flight, we traveled 35 million miles. Boy, it sounded like a lot. We came back, it was a world record, our chests all pumped out. Then we pull out the calculator and realize that's the distance that light goes in just three minutes. Yet it takes light over four years just to reach our nearest star. So when it comes to real space travel, we have barely nudged the tip of our collective toe out the front door. We also know we're on the front end of travels and adventures far greater than anything we can now picture. We also know we will never stop exploring. It's hardwired into our psyche. I believe if you scratch deep enough in the tough hide of the most sophisticated hard-boiled space engineer or space scientist, inside you're going to find a Trekkie. <laughs> That's someone who understands that all the data we bring back from unmanned missions or telescopes are interesting, even exciting, but ultimately it's we who have to go there in person to see and feel new turf up close before it ever becomes a two part of our own world. I also believe that one day, driven by the human spirit and the pride and the capabilities from people around the nation, around the world, we will travel out to the rest of our solar system and eventually beyond. Beyond. Hmm. What the heck could that mean? Well, I don't know about you, but at this point, I really start to feel small. Well, let's take another three steps so we can feel even smaller. When you go out at night and you look up at the sky, stars start to emerge. Pretty soon a whole sea of them is there, especially uh, when you eliminate all the light from the background, anything which will uh, destroy your uh, dark adaption. Well, this uh, is what you see if you just go out on any ordinary night away from the, from the light of of moon or anything on Earth. This particular picture is actually from the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, some of the people on the Hubble began to wonder, what the heck could be any of those dark spots there? So with many of the other astronomers on the Hubble all concerned about their own experiments and really didn't feel like doing anything else, uh, these experimenters were able to take the high resolution instruments on Hubble and focus them on the darkest and emptiest space they could find. And instead of nothing, they saw a wealth of objects out there at the very edge of our universe. Objects as they appeared right after the Big Bang, right after the creation of our own universe. All of this is very humbling. It makes us realize all the more that empty space is not empty at all. And the possibilities of life elsewhere in our universe are enormous. There is 100 billion uh, stars in every galaxy, 100 billion galaxies out there in our universe. That's a number 10 to the 22. And then there's moons and planets associated with many of those stars, just like there is with their own sun. So the possibilities of love out there are enormous. But 
What we all wonder, of course, is, is there anything out there like us? Anything out there like us humans? Anything we can communicate with who think like us? Well, there's been a lot of people propose some, uh, some possibilities, uh, some kind of interesting. <sighs> However, we have even bigger questions than this. Ordinary matter. This is a beautiful picture of down here on Earth, San Francisco, for example. This is all we've ever known, just our Earth. And also, if you look at ourselves, they were all made out of ordinary matter, from the smallest cuticle out to the largest galaxy we can imagine. It's all ordinary matter. Like up until 40 years ago, that's all we ever knew about, and that's all we thought existed. However, 40 years ago, people began to look at the motions of stars and said, there's something else out there that's causing these stars to move in a different way than what we would imagine. And it turns out that stuff is called now dark matter. We don't know anything about it except by its gravitational pull. But it's there, for sure. And through careful observation, they've been able to deduce that it's about at least five times what our ordinary matter is. So just think of it. We got this uh, part of our universe out there that's five times greater than us, even though we can't see it. It really makes you wonder what's going on in that part of the world, that part of the universe. Well, if you're a very careful mathematician, you notice that 27 and 5 do not add up to 100. So there's something else out there. 20 years ago, people were beginning to uh, wonder, the cosmologists were beginning to wonder, what's going on with the expansion of our universe? You think after the Big Bang, things, it was just a big explosion, things extend outward, and then after a, a period of, of inflation, uh, the gravity would certainly pull it all back down. You know, if I throw this up in the air, it'll come, up, it'll come back down to me. So gravity, you think, would make every one of those things slow down. Question, there were two, had two questions then. Does it go out and slow down, but not quite enough, and just continually eke outward? Or does it come down, come out, and stop and come back in for what we call a big crunch? and start this thing all over again. Well, as one of the guys on uh, some of our local science channels says, boy, were we wrong. Turns out our universe is not slowing down at all. It's accelerating. There's a tremendous amount of energy associated with that. And if you look at that, what we call dark energy now, that huge amount of energy, and you convert it into its much more concentrated form, based on what Mr. Einstein has taught us, you find out that that is twice as much uh, in terms of matter of what we have in the dark matter and dark uh, and ordinary matter. Or looked at, perhaps in a little more graphical way, easier to understand, two-thirds of our universe is made up of this matter associated with dark energy. Dark matter, a little over a quarter. And here's good old ordinary matter, which we used to think was 100% two generations ago. Now we've been reduced to looking at ourselves and what we're made out of as only 5%. Well, at this point, um, I don't know about, you, won't know about you, but even as I go through it now, I feel a little, um, a little overwhelmed. And I'm sure that some of you, especially uh, who, are, who might be students, might say, enough. I've had it. I've, you're overwhelming me. No mas, please. <laughs> Teacher. Can I go home? My brain is full. Well, it turns out that you still encounter what's called a yabba. Now, at the end of a class, you find out that 
uh, after you've been told something really amazing and you're really mulling on it and your brain is actually full and overflowing, there's always someone in the back of the room that says, with a hand raised, yeah, but. You realize, of course, that our universe is just one of our universes which are possible. Why not other universes which are created in the same domain as ours, but in other, their own particular um, explosions and with perhaps with different physical properties that result, but nonetheless, there's nothing to exclude this, and a lot of people are beginning to think this might be the case. We don't have any, of course, physical grounds for understanding it, but there's no reason to exclude it, whether it's 10, 20, zillions, who knows how many, but there certainly could be other universes out there. So this is where we encounter, come up faith, flat face up against some of the most challenging and amazing, uh, exciting, and yet formidable part about exploration. The more we learn, the more ignorant we realize we are. So, could there be anything left to do in space? In truth, our adventures in space have barely, barely just begun. This is an exciting time to be alive. Who still wants to fly? Good. Well, there's one thought I'd like to leave you with, uh, especially for students, but I'm sure all of you, we all face this at one time or another. We have challenges. And you begin to think, am I going to measure up to that challenge? Maybe I shouldn't even try it. Well, the important thing is to realize that you don't listen to anybody around you. You don't listen to your friends, your parents, your teachers, your kids, uh, the internet, whatever. And you listen, gotta listen to the words from one of our great American philosophers, Nike, <laughs> who says, the only one who can tell you you can't is you. And even better yet, you don't have to listen. Thank you, I'll try to answer any of your questions. Thank you so much. Was, wasn't that fascinating to listen to uh, Dr. Gibson's uh, views and, and literally views from, from outer space looking back at Earth and his, uh, his insights into what um, exploration looks like now. So thank you. We have time for some questions. Uh, we had hoped that we would be able to use the telescopes tonight and in a normal Tucson night we would be able to but <laughs> clouds have intervened. So we won't be able to do that piece of the evening. That leaves a little more time for questions and answers. So uh, Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for uh, hosting us in this space and he can bring the microphone around so you can ask your question. Any questions? So you mentioned that you worked with Deke Slayton when you were an astronaut. Did you have the opportunity to work with any of the other Mercury 7 astronauts? Yeah, I, I, I knew them all. I didn't fly with any of them, but I knew them all pretty well. Uh, uh, I didn't know John Glenn quite as well because he left the program uh, after he flew on Mercury, but I've since gotten to know him. And they were all good, really sound individuals. And uh, I'm glad they led the way for the rest of us. Really good people. My question is, what do you think about the commercial space exploration, perhaps uh, SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, of people who will want to call themselves astronauts when they haven't been NASA astronauts? Well, first of all, the, the, the commercial space program is really great. I'm glad to see it happen. Uh, 
Just imagine where we'd be today if the government ran the airlines. <laughs> so we've got to get to the point where we bring commercial enterprise and the free enterprise system into it. And that's what commercial space is all about. Now, that undertaking is really a, a large undertaking. So as you see SpaceX struggling, but I think they're going to achieve their goals as well as a few other companies who are doing the same thing. And I wish them well. I'm not sure when that's going to happen. Now, in terms of whether people are not come from NASA or wherever, if someone puts their, their little body in a spacecraft and they go up over 80 miles, uh, they're an astronaut in my eyes. I don't, you know, the rest of it is, is uh, superfluous. Any other questions? Yes, up here. Um, it says your experience is also in space medicine and physiology. Could you talk about that a little? Sure. Well, we did three things in, in space as our uh, three goals. One was to look back at the Earth. One was to study the sun and look out at the stars. And the other was to understand ourselves, what happens to the human body in spaceflight. So we had a lot of experiments. Each third day, we were uh, um, a subject. And the other two days, we got to torture the other guy. <laughs> Uh, we did a lot of um, experiments. One was lower body negative pressure, which essentially is a way to put yourself into a, a tank, pull the, uh, a lot of the air out from a, a seal in, into your legs. And it was the equivalent, as so far as your cardiovascular system saw it, of standing up and having gravity pull it back down into your legs. And we wanted to understand how well you could understand, uh, how, you could, how well you could withstand that uh, pressure on your cardiovascular system. And it turned out that um, we got very close after two months or so. Some people really started getting light, light, uh, lightheaded, called presyncope, where you essentially pass out because the blood all heads towards your, your legs and, uh, and you lose it from your brain. But then we slowly adapted and came back on that. We looked at our blood, understand what happens there. Uh, we drew blood every third day on each, on each one of us, and they looked at the, uh, the abnormalities, if there were any, and there were some subtle ones, which I won't won't go into it, it's, it's very, uh, very subtle. We uh, looked at um, what happens to the human eye, and uh, people, even though we did notice it, some people since then have said they saw a degradation in the human eye. Uh, we had um, three things when we, that happened to us when we were in flight that were very noticeable. One was this, I already mentioned, the blood flow uh, uh, up in the upper part of your body. Well, it's just the opposite when you come back because now you're not used to that force of gravity on your body. So when you get back into there, everything heads towards your, your feet and you, um, you tend to gray out or pass out. And uh, fortunately, we were, as I said, we were wearing those G-suits so we understood standing up and outside that spacecraft and immediately crumpling to the deck of the carrier was not good public relations. <laughs> but nonetheless, we, uh, when you, when you do that, uh, when you first come back, you feel very lightheaded, and also your balance is a little off. So first two or three days, the first, first couple hours especially, you have a tough time walking. You walk like this with your feet very wide apart, like you're coming home late Friday night from a party. <laughs> uh, but after, after around two weeks uh, on the balance beam, they couldn't detect any real problems. Uh, then we... Uh, also lost calcium from our bones. And that was a very slow process. And we lost about um, a couple percent over that period of time, mostly from the long bones in our legs because that was where we uh, 
had taken, were not used to uh, having zero force on those legs. So uh, you take the, it's a piezoelectric material, so when you take the stress off of it, it keeps the, uh, doesn't draw the calcium in to replace it. And so you slowly lose calcium, especially near the joints. Uh, it took around um, about uh, two months when we got back, where by measuring RS calcis bone and a few others, uh, that uh, took about that two months to get back to the normal pre-flight. Uh, I don't know whether there's any long-term effects. I'm, uh, I used to be 5'9". I'm now about 5'5 five, five, five or so. So I figure at this rate, by the year 2097, I will achieve zero height. So, Doctor, because um, in your slideshow you show a philosophy 101 a comics image. So, <laughs> as a hardcore scientist, how do you view as the humanity in the know of your scientific research and developments? Like, you mean, was the humanistic uh, side of what we did, or? Or how do you think the humanity things help you in pursuit of excellency, as you have today? Just go a little bit further. I think I got what you're saying, but. Yeah, just. Like all these things, like literature, poetry, um, even yeah. photography. Well, when you, okay, un understand. Well, when you go into space, you take the whole human with you. So uh, not just the technical one, which is doing everything to, uh, to make the mission work, but also the one that's able to look back at the Earth and see its beauty. Also the one that re well, reflects on where you are as a human and realize that you're one of the few people who've ever had this opportunity to be up here, and you're one of the first ones to ever uh, make a step off our planet, which you know in the long term, thousands upon thousands of people will do. Um, and uh, you know, some people, depending upon your background, will look at it religiously, and uh, it usually tends to amplify what religious feelings you have. I myself looked at it, and uh, as, as I said, you're looking at all of the possibilities of life out there, and it just opens up your mind to the mystery of this whole thing. Uh, you know, you just, um, you can't determine uh, when you look at exploration, uh, you realize that no matter how hard you look at it, there's, you're just going to be find another secret around the next corner. And uh, so that's, uh, that, you, that becomes philosophical and religious, depending upon what camp you want to put it in. We have one more question here. Yes, uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, I noticed that breakfast, you had each astronaut had a syringe to the <laughs> Okay. And, Always and get the other question. question, which is not even a question, is how do the, those aliens in the bathtubs get into that Cialis commercial? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. They, they led the way for the rest of us. But um, well, let's see. Um, your first question was? The syringe. Oh, the syringes, yeah. Well, you know, we, were, we did not take any uh, pharmaceutical enhancements in order to make sure we went into flight. Turns out that when you're up there and you want to use salt or pepper in, in space, you just can't shake it on and hope for the best because you're going to, it's going to be all over. You're going to have a big cleanup job and you'll never get it on your food. So we put it all in the water solution. So the salt and the pepper were both in water solution. So we had learned to use that before we left so we didn't have to uh, get used to training ourselves once we got in the flight. So that's what that was all about. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>